To the people of Florida, we're so sorry you're going through this. Some can't watch because no power. Fortunately, it sounds like those initial reports of hundreds of fatalities may have been uh, way off the mark. Hopefully, it's much, much uh, smaller, the numbers, ultimately. This is Lee County, Florida. Look at that bridge. It's gone. There was supposed to be a bridge there, and uh, it was taken away. Next, uh, this, again, is Fort Myers. I mean, in a way, it feels like Fort Myers was Fort Myers ground zero in all of this. Um, also in Lee County, a mobile home. Mobile homes always, gosh, they're, they're especially vulnerable, but some of them just floating away. Look at that. They look like on their side. Some we did see float away. Horrible fires all over the place. And then I don't think I've ever seen uh, planes just flipped over like little toys at the airport. And I also have never seen a traffic light just come down uh, like this. Have you ever seen that? I know it happens, but bam. And then in the middle of the storm, uh, this, wow, really tough. When will life be back to normal? We don't know. But our friend Jack Brewer, the entrepreneur, friend of Trump, a retired NFL player, was on the ground at Fort Myers today. Uh, Jack, good to see you. Welcome back. How are you? How's Fort Myers? How's Florida? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to, to see. You know, the hand of God is powerful, man. I, I, I got first stop was in Naples and uh, as we saw water levels just so high, man, you could you could see how, how high they had come onto houses. Uh, you also uh, saw so many people who, you know, had lost their property and their cars. And so we tried to help them as much as we could. And then we ventured over uh, into Fort Myers. And I just have never seen anything quite like it. So much water and destruction. I mean, literally boats, large yachts slamming into into buildings. Um, and, you know, you just saw people that were helpless, you know, you, you felt so bad. You know, I did a lot of relief work during Harvey uh, and have done some during Irma and, and other hurricanes. But this one is a little bit different. I mean, it was so many people uh, with all of their property completely uh, just submerged in water. And so, you know, these houses are ruined. Uh, and, you know, many of the folks didn't have flood insurance. And so, you know, they were living in places that didn't even require them to have flood insurance. And so, you know, it, when you start looking at, you know, the, the real life um, perspective of the, the, the victims, uh, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, Jack, tell us a little bit more about your work. Uh, you're there on the ground. You've worked uh, relief efforts, other hurricanes. Your mission is what? To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, um, pure and simple. You know, we, we offer relief uh, for the past 15 plus years. We've delivered clean water. Uh, and so today was our day to make the assessments. And many of, of these poor victims don't have clean water now. Obviously, you mentioned they don't have electricity, uh, but, you know, they're on boil alerts. And so we, we distribute aqua tabs uh, and help educate people on the importance uh, after a, a, a devastating hurricane like this that you, you, you have to clean your water. You gotta make sure that you don't have those waterborne diseases because you know, the next three, four, five days are gonna be very critical uh, to this recovery effort. And so uh, many people see things that are visual, but it's those in, invisible threats that you know, our, our organization tries to help prepare people for. And so we've been doing it for a long time. You know, I've been to some of the worst um, devastations in Haiti and across the world. And so we'll continue to help our fellow brothers and sisters right here in Florida throughout this crisis as well. Jack, one more thing. I happen to be a believer as well. Uh, but when something like this happens, you know, people do wonder, non-believers, sometimes believers too. You know, why, why, does, 
Why does God allow something like this? And um, it's, 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 it can be a tough one, but I bet nobody can answer it like you. Why does he allow things like this? You know, sometimes he has to get, get our attention, you know, uh, but, he, but the Bible also teaches us that uh, our charity covers a multitude of sins. And I think this is God really reaching out to us, telling us we got to get back to serving again. We got to get back to ministering again. And ministering means to serve uh, and charity means to love. And so uh, I think it's a warning to us all that we need to love our brothers and sisters more uh, and, and not care so much about the big boats and cars and houses that are being submerged, uh, but care about our eternal life and our eternity. Uh, our nation has gotten so far away from righteousness in so many different areas. And I think it's time for us all to repent and get closer to God again. Uh, and I think times like this, God is warning us and showing us truly what's important. And I think we will all, if we humble ourselves, we'll take that message. Uh, we will we'll, we'll take the spirit of repentance uh, and really be appreciative for living in the greatest country on earth. Amen. Jack Brewer, thank you for what you do. And, uh, Thank you for uh, your message. Um, thebrewergroup.com. Please check out thebrewergroup.com. Many thanks, sir. God bless you, Greg. Thank you. And uh, our John Huddy is on the ground right now in South Florida. He's mobile. He's on the phone. And I believe we... John, John can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can. John, tell us a little bit about where you are, what you're seeing right now. So we've been, I've been in Naples um, all day. I was just listening to Jack. And uh, this is an area that uh, was hit hard by the storm. Um, all 200, really roughly 200 miles of coastline here on the Gulf Coast, uh, from Naples all the way up to Sarasota, you know, Fort Myers, as he was talking about, and then even Tampa Bay and, and St. Pete, all felt the brunt of the storm. And, and really, this is a storm defined not only bred by, by the ferocious wind, uh, up to 155 miles per hour. There were reports of 190 miles per hour gusts. And then once it made landfall, it went from 110 to 140 miles per hour. But also the storm surge. And the storm surge, like so many hurricanes, like Sandy, that I know you were in New York when I was there reporting on that, uh, that was the killer during the, back then. And it's once again the deadly part and the, and the devastating part of this storm as well, Hurricane Ian. Uh, storm surge anywhere from 10 to 18 feet in some of these impacted areas, such as Naples. I was in downtown Naples earlier this afternoon, Greg, and yesterday, this time, it would have been underwater. All the businesses, they were full of water, the homes, you know, the first level of the homes that weren't built up underwater, apartment building. In fact, we were about to give you an idea how strong that surge was. We were about three miles inland. There were like seven pontoon boats in the middle of the road of Davis Boulevard, which is a main thoroughfare, it runs through kind of the commercial district. They literally were floated by the water from a, a yacht sales lot and got stuck on the center median. A couple others wound up in a parking lot across the street. The owner of the place said, we're still searching for two more. Uh, so that's how strong this storm surge was in these coastal areas that were hit hard. And then obviously uh, we're hearing about the search and, and rescue operations continuing in some of the barrier islands like Sanibel and Captiva, which is off Fort Myers. And Greg, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there a few times with my family. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful, but it's surrounded by water on both sides. And I can only imagine how bad it is there right now. The main thoroughfare, the bridge going over there was washed out. And so basically connection has been lost. So the only way to access those barrier islands 
is by boat at this point. So the cleanup's continuing. We're starting to see how bad the storm was. It's a historic storm uh, and, 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 and certainly a, uh, a real bad one in the history of, uh, of Florida. Hey, one, John, thank you. Hey, what about uh, fatalities? You know, there was that report yesterday. It scared a lot of yeah. us. Hundreds of fatalities came from a sheriff or a deputy sheriff. Seems like, and this is good news, that that was way uh, overestimated and we're not going to see anything like that. Uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I, I, I don't have the latest numbers, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, we're not hearing about hundreds of fatalities. But keep in mind, some of the areas um, have been very hard for crews to get to, like those barrier islands. Now, now, a lot of people did heed the mandatory evacuation orders, and they left. But a lot of people did it. And so I think that's the concern, is that as they're going into some of these areas, that they may not, that have been inaccessible, that things could be a lot different. But right now, uh, we're not hearing of, of an astronomical rate of fatalities. And, and hopefully that remains the case, Greg. All right. John Huddy, once again, in a hot spot, in a, in a trouble zone. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Thanks, Greg. Okay. All right. You know, folks, uh, with all the anti-law enforcement hype that's been out there, guess who they're counting on? Cops to provide security, and they've been saving lives. A lot of other first responders as well, but law enforcement, don't forget. And we'll, uh, we'll be talking about that when we come back. How did public opinion turn against the police? Did it ever? Did it really? You know, cops for the longest time were heroes, universally considered so. And you knew that by watching network TV. Who remembers Hill Street Blues? Now, who could watch this show and listen to this song, by the way, and be rooting for the bad guys? <laughs> Cops were great people. They are great people. And America understood that as an entire culture, right? And it wasn't just uh, Hill Street Blues. It was a million other shows. It was, uh, what, Starsky and Hutch, and the list goes on and on and on. You name it. It was on television. Uh, Detectives with Attitude or, uh, oh, NYPD Blue, of course. That was a big show. Uh, Miami Vice and the classic One Adam 12 and like <laughs> 10,000 other shows that have been on network television uh, glorifying, celebrating the cops. Because as a society, we need law and order. We like law and order. And we like those who provided up until about eight seconds ago when everything got crazy. But it was very recent. You know, it wasn't just in Hollywood that this celebration was going on. People in their hearts knew the cops were doing a good job. Before the Democrats made everything go crazy, as recently as 2013, the New York City Police Department had overwhelming approval from whites, black people, Hispanic people, you name it. They loved the NYPD. And now everything's changed, hasn't it? What happened? What happened where somehow this became 
This became cool, at least among the social and racial justice warriors. This kind of crazy behavior is accepted. People were radicalized. You've heard of young men, maybe in the Middle East, spending way too much time online and becoming radicalized and joining Al-Qaeda, joining ISIS. It's happening, a milder form of it, here in America, where people spend way too much online, read stuff from their friends or woke websites about how bad the cops are, throw in some (laughs) ample amounts of marijuana, maybe, and then you close down the world, make everybody stay inside for a few months. That was a crazy time, wasn't it? I actually took this footage seven o'clock on a weeknight in the middle of Manhattan. Nobody was there. Nobody. I felt like that Vanilla Sky movie. Remember Tom Cruise? He's like the only man alive. That's what it felt like. So you had people cooped up, especially young people. I mean, they have to keep their Instagram feeds up with something, right? Aha! Let's go celebrate uh, George Floyd, right? Black Lives Matter. I really do believe that's kind of what happened here. And everything, centuries of contributions from the police somehow erased. Did we forget all the good things they have done? And they do. Recently and a long time ago, how about yesterday in Fort Myers? I mean, who the heck else is going to go out there and direct traffic and close down roads? Not all police work is uh, chasing bad guys, you know. It's also finding lost kids. Some amazing things happen all the time with police. And it's all been erased. Uh, Last year, a police officer saved a young baby uh, after a car wreck. A terrorist actually ran into some people. Baby was badly injured. A, A female police officer recognized that immediately, took her out of there to get her help. Another hero of mine, Moira Smith, Officer Moira Smith on the left there. That's on September 11, 2001, rescuing people. This is about 15 minutes before she was killed on that day. And another one, and I, I, I think about this picture all the time. He didn't even know it was being taken. It, it was uh, Officer Lawrence DePrimo, Larry DePrimo. He just bought this homeless man. It was um, in a cold month in 2012, shoes. It was cold, so we bought him a pair of shoes and, and gave them to him. Cops do things like this all the time, and nobody, too many have forgotten. Too many have forgotten, including crazy district attorneys. Have you heard about this guy Kessler in Philadelphia? He's a madman, and he's a liar. There are multiple things going on in the system, but it has never been the case before until we had reform prosecutors where people tried to blame just one entity. We all have to work together, and the reality is that we have been more and effective. And you are a reform district attorney. Everybody, everybody in the country knows that. But maybe it's not working. It is working. The reality is that There's our convic- a thousand people killed in 20 months. The, it is working. The reality is, when you look at all these different jurisdictions, we've had a devastating blow from the pandemic, and there is absolutely no correlation between being progressive or traditional and the rate of crime. These states in the United States that have a rate of homicide that is 40 percent higher are MAGA states. They are Trump states. I'll say it again. The rate of homicide in Trump states, as compared to Biden states, take all 50 of them, is 40 percent higher. You know, higher. Republicans say the opposite. It's all the blue states. Republicans lie. I mean, let's just get down to it. Republicans lie. That is what they do. Eight of not the 10 cities with not, not, well, okay, that's right. Not all of them do, but the MAGA ones do. Eight out of 10 of the most violent cities are Trump cities. Like, we got to get real about this. Facts matter. <laughs> Liberal woke 
and a liar. Oh, boy. His name is Krasner, the Philadelphia district attorney. He thinks he's being cute here. By the way, progressive policies have screwed up law enforcement big time. You can have an axe, attack people with it, and be released from jail in four hours. Those are progressive policies that are putting people at risk. Absolutely. But here's to his uh, eight of the top 10 cities or mega cities. So uh, the top 10 most violent cities in America. All right. Now, I know what he's trying to do here. Now, we put little red check marks next to all the cities that are, say, red states in 2016. Oh, wow. Does he have a point? No. No, he doesn't. He's playing a game. And I've heard this a lot. So let's go through it. Number one, Detroit, Michigan. All right. Now, look at Michigan for a moment. Okay. Notice anything? It's mostly red, except for Detroit, which is very, very blue. Okay, that is not a MAGA city. And it goes on like this. Let's go to Tennessee, red state. Sure enough, except for Memphis. Very, very, very blue. The third most violent city in America is Birmingham, Alabama, red state to be sure. But oh, yeah, it's in a blue county. Absolutely. Uh, Let's see. Next on our list, St. Louis, Missouri, red state in 2016. Uh, Kansas City, St. Louis, both, both heavily, heavily blue jurisdictions. And it goes on. Cleveland, Ohio, definitely a red state uh, when Trump. But yeah, Cleveland, part of Cayuga County is a Cayuga County, Cayuga County, whatever county. That is a blue, blue, blue city. Uh, wrapping up here, same goes for Little Rock, Arkansas, Arkansas, red state. Yep, definitely went for Trump. But Little Rock, oh boy, that is blue. That is blue. That is blue. One more, at least back in 2016, Trump won Wisconsin and Milwaukee. Milwaukee is blue. And let's take a quick look at the mayors, the mayors of all these cities, these mega mayors. Are these mega mayors? They're not mega mayors. Uh, Let's take a look at this list, please. The next. Uh, uh, You notice anything that these folks have in common? Anything at all? They're all Democrats. They all have D's next to their name. All right, Mr. Krasner, you should resign because you're dishonest. A bad, bad, bad public servant. Get out. All right, we'll be right back. Hey, Bill O'Reilly is coming up. Stay with us. Say her name. All right. Say your name, Brianna Taylor. Then what? Then what? Well, how about say some facts that the media ignored in this case? A couple of things. You know about the Brianna Taylor situation, right? Well, she was in a relationship with a man wanted by police. She was involved with his drug enterprise. The police announced themselves. This whole thing about a no-knock uh, situation. Also, how about this? The boyfriend fired the first shot. And she was standing next to the boyfriend. She was not in bed asleep. So many myths about this case. We are joined now by Sergeant John Mattingly. He was there that night. And his book, it's called 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Brianna Taylor raid. Uh, Sergeant Mattingly, retired. Welcome back. How are you? Doing great, Greg. I appreciate you having me back. 
You bet. Listen, uh, how was life for you in the community? We just went through it. There are a lot of misconceptions uh, about this case. A lot of people think they know the story, but they don't. You're walking around the community. Are you feeling any edge, any shade? Are people, you know, treating you with some hostility? Yeah, uh, most of the time I wear a hat and, you know, grow my beard out a little bit. And so I try to stay kind of incognito because the threats are still out there. Uh, we still receive stuff constantly on, on social media of, you know, what people are going to do and what they're going to do to my children and, you know, all these type things. So um, I try to stay in the community as much as I can because it's where I love. I grew up there. I've been there almost my entire life. And, you know, I just want to be part of it. If we could take all the emotion out of it and you could meet those haters on social media and you could sit down with them face to face and they let's pretend they had an open mind. What do they not understand about this case that they should understand? And again, you were there and we nobody wants Brianna Taylor or anybody to be dead. But there's some important facts here that have been overlooked. So please tell us what they should know, what we should know. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of them, you know, not a sleep in bed. Uh, we did knock and announce we have somebody who who is part of that community that actually stepped forward, had the courage because most people don't. You know, they're scared to because they don't they don't want to be ostracized by their own people. Uh, but we had one man that stepped up and said, no, they did knock and announce. Um, and then all the myths that have come after us. I mean, we've been one of the attorneys continues to say on, on social media and get people riled up saying we were there to rob them. And take their money, you know, right after we just had a brief with 50 people in an office that we're going to go seven of us and go rob this person. Um, the plain clothes myth. Yes, we weren't in official uniform, but we were in vests that said police. Um, so our uh, our physical announcement was more than uh, just a little badge on a uniform. Um, and then there's the, then there's the fact that they said nothing was found at the location. Well, that's true because nobody searched for it. So it's kind of hard to find stuff if you're not looking for it because. Uh, the detectives that asked to go back to the scene to search that house were told, no, um, it was over. It's done. And this is where we stand. Uh, and the boyfriend did fire the first shot. Yeah, he admitted it. Well, originally, he came out and said that Brianna fired the shot. Uh, then later on, he confessed to it because I did see the gun in his hand as soon as I turned that corner. Uh, no doubt in my mind, he shot. He finally admitted it, said he fired a warning round into the ground, which is absurd. Uh, my response to that is, well, maybe we just, you know, we're firing warning rounds back. But that's not how the DOJ sees it. So, yeah. Uh, so Daniel Cameron, the attorney general of uh, Kentucky, came right out and said they investigated this thing for months and months and months. And they decided not to file charges. Now we have four officers who are still in trouble, I believe. Uh, do we have their picture? Kelly Hannah Goodlett, Kyle Meany, Joshua Janes, Brett Hankison. Um, and I understand they're in charge. There, there might be some administrative issues. Uh, what's their status? What can you tell us? Well, I'll start with Brett because Brett was with me that night uh, on scene and he already went through a state trial and was acquitted. And from that, uh, then the DOJ, I heard that one of the representatives of the FBI was in the courtroom when he got acquitted. And the phrase that was said was, this isn't over yet. And then they left. And now they've recharged him on a federal level with basically the same charges, except for the caveat that they added a civil rights violation. Even though his bullets didn't strike anyone, uh, no one was injured by his actions. And now he's looking at life in prison when they turn around and let the guy that shot me dismiss all of his charges. So the 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 bipolar uh, aspect of charging people with this federal government is just out of control. Then you've got the sergeant there, Kyle Meany. Um, I really believe he's being a scapegoat here. I don't think... Uh, at least to, to what I know, 
I don't think he did anything improper. Now, you've got Kelly and Josh who, you know, after they said the postal inspector verified the address uh, that that Glover, her ex-boyfriend, was getting packages there when, in fact, he didn't. And so but they do have video and pictures of him going in empty handed and coming out with those postal packages. But they worded it wrong in the warrant. And that's caused an uproar and made this thing look even you know, worse than it already was. So, again, a drug dealer fired a gun at police. Cops returned fire. And some of these cops are still facing many years in jail. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, when they downloaded uh, Walker's phone, the guy that shot me, uh, there's evidence in there where he was doing home invasions himself. He had pictures of pills, which are probably fentanyl because that's all the pills are nowadays and marijuana that he was selling to the Hooters girls. So this guy was not an upstanding citizen. Um, and, and they painted both of them out to be these these martyrs for, you know, the community against police violence. And that's just not the case at all. So what has been the um, the impact, the legacy of this, at least at your police department? Uh, I know you're not there anymore, but I mean, who is going to want to ever do a job that might require, you know, some risk, some use of force. And oh, by the way, police work requires risk and a use of force from time to time. I would imagine that this has had a real chilling effect. What 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 does it mean? What's the practical impact? Well, you've had several hundred officers either retire that were eligible or just simply walk away and do other careers because they said, my freedom and my family is not worth doing what you train me to do, what you ask me to do, and then you put me out there and tell me to do it, and I do it, and then you turn around and charge me for these things. Can I give you a real quick story? Sure. So there's a female in the department who, during these protests, um, her name's Katie, and she was sent with a group of individuals along with the National Guard to an area where there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people who were out past curfew, shooting weapons. When our SWAT team drove through to get a, an eye on it, they actually shot at the SWAT van. And so they sent them down there to to disperse these people and send them on their way. Well, they get there. She fired a pepper ball from a pepper ball gun. Didn't strike anyone. Simply fired a pepper ball, which is so low on the force continuum, it's crazy. I mean, it's below a strike. All right. And when she did that, this guy stepped out of his business and fired around at the police, stepped back in, stepped out the door again, fired another round. And that's when the National Guard uh, took aim and, and shot the guy and killed him. And now she is also facing prison time. The DOJ indicted her and the FBI because they said she incited this. And All it was right. a civil rights violation yeah. against these people. This is crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Yeah. But I think that... I, I hope there's going to be a correction. Something tells me there is. But uh, John Mattingly, thank you. The book, again, is 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Brianna Taylor raid. Thank you, sir, very, very much. Next, Bill O'Reilly. He knows something about books. He just wrote a great one. And uh, there he is. Check out Elvis Presley, right around 1968. I remember that. Uh, I saw that in a movie once. He was fantastic. Uh, it was a special, I think, on Channel 13 as well. Now look at Elvis 10 years later or so. Ooh, looking rough, looking rough. Well, the fame may have killed him. That's according to our next guest, Bill O'Reilly. He is the author of Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. He is the uh, best-selling nonfiction author of all time. Bill, welcome back, and congratulations on this awesome book. How are you? 
Good. I wrote it uh, to protect you, Kelly, because you're getting to be a big celebrity and I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I think you might be onto something. So, hey, what about Elvis? I mean, like, what was it about fame? In 1968, he had been famous for a while and he seemed to be in control. But then the next 10 years, all hell breaks loose. Let me backtrack a little. Uh, This is the 12th Killing Book, the most successful nonfiction book series of all time. And the reason I did this as a historian, I look back on the country and uh, turning points in the country. And Elvis Presley himself changed the entire country socially. Now, you weren't born yet, Kelly, but I was. I was a little kid. It was the 1950s, post-World War II, Dwight Eisenhower president, conformity across the land. Everybody looked the same, talked the same, no dissent, none of that. In the space of six minutes on The Ed Sullivan Show, Presley sang Hound Dog, and the whole culture of the United States crashed. Girls were screaming. Pastors the next day said Elvis was driven by Satan. Parents were telling their sons, you can't slick your hair back and wear a leather jacket. The whole culture blew up into more of a rebellious thing because of one man, Elvis Presley. And that's why I wrote about him and John Lennon and Muhammad Ali. All three of those people had a tremendously disruptive force in our American culture even today. Who did the best at handling the fame? Elvis, they all had problems. I was actually curious about Muhammad Ali because, uh, you know, he... He seemed to have it all. He kept it together. He didn't crash and burn. He ultimately got sick, very, very sick, Parkinson's. But how did the fame actually do him in? Well, he sold his soul to the nation of Islam. And uh, Elijah Muhammad was the leader. And then his son, Herbert Muhammad, became Ali's manager. And some of the best writing I've ever done, the opening portion of the Ali chapter in Killing the Legends where Ali almost dies, literally dies, in the fight in Manila against Joe Frazier. Ali's doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, tells him and the Nation of Islam, you got to keep him out of the ring for a while. He's so damaged. He couldn't even walk for two weeks, Ali, after that fight. Four months later, who's back in the ring? Muhammad Ali because the Muslims made him fight because they were taking much of the money that he earned. So like the other two, Elvis and Lennon, Ali lost control of his life and trusted people who eventually harmed him. You know, that sounds a little bit like Trump. He he did trust some people, but I want to back up and say this about Donald Trump. He's been famous. I mean, household name famous for about 40 years And he's managed to keep it together and even kind of build on it. Is Donald Trump uniquely skilled at handling fame in a a way that these guys weren't? I think Donald Trump's fame has hurt him. I wrote a book called The United States of Trump, and you're absolutely right. From age 10, he wanted to be famous. But he has to be in the center of attention every day. And in order to do that, You have to whip up controversy. You have to do things that ultimately some of them came back and hurt Trump. I'll give you an example. Uh, A woman named Maggie Haberman writes for The New York Times. She has, over the years, excoriated Trump, 
brutally, brutally excoriated him. He gives her access, three interviews for her new book, which is going to, again, rip Trump's throat out. Why would you do that? Because Trump wants to be the center of attention, even if it's negative attention. And I think that has hurt him. I think he would have been reelected because he did do a good job as president without all the so-called baggage of a controversy du jour. Let me run this by you on Donald Trump, because I often wondered myself, why is he giving interviews to hostile reporters? But yeah. most people, most people are not going to read Maggie Haberman's book, no matter how well it does. But they will see that Donald Trump is on the cover of it and being famous, being uh, being out there every day might work to his advantage in terms of enhance if he wants to be visible. Anyway, I guess I'm getting a little bit lost here. Yeah, I just not thought- anymore. Not anymore. He's established. If Trump would just run on his record. And that's why I did the four history shows with him last December. Okay, if he just run on that, he'd win. But all of the other crap, you're right, they're not going to read Haberman's book, but it's on social media every single day. Boom, boom, boom. You don't need that. It's debilitating. Here's what I think he should do. And I I want any piece of advice. First of all, the advice for everybody is to get this book, Another Gem, Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. I'm a big Rocky fan, Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3. In Rocky 2, Rocky goes from southpaw to right-handed. Do you think Donald Trump is capable at the right moment of changing his game, of doing something that nobody would expect, maybe reaching out to the left, doing something that only he could do, Nixon to China. Um, Does that make sense? I feel like I actually had this feeling when he came down the escalator after that speech that he could be a president who wins 49 states. I know, very naive and silly in retrospect, but I still feel like he has that potential. Well, I did the first interview him off the escalator, as you probably know, and I was surprised that he won the nomination. I thought that the machine, the Republican machine, particularly Jeb Bush, would defeat him. He won because of his so-called moxie, because he was an avenger and people were tired, are tired, of uh, standard politicians. But now he's a statesman. He succeeded. He ran the country well. You don't need Maggie Haberman anymore. But it's that fame, that addiction. Every day you got to get the juice. And it just overtakes people. Same thing with Biden. Biden gave up every principle he held, every one, sold out to become president because the pathway was through the progressives. Biden was never progressive. He gave up his faith, his Catholic faith, by being an abortion zealot because he wanted to power. That's what fame does. It crushes people. I guess Presley, yeah. Presley was one of the most talented people on the planet. And he died at 42. Lenin had everything and became a heroin addict. Ali management killed him. I mean, these are extraordinary stories for extraordinary times. The book again, Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. Congratulations once again, Bill O'Reilly changed literature and changed television. And uh, who knows what's next? Thank you, Bill, very much. I appreciate you having me on, Greg. All right. Take care. We'll be right back.
All right, Ron DeSantis, looks like he's doing a very good job down there in Florida in the aftermath of this storm and in the run-up to it and everything else. But uh, because he's so good and he's a Republican, the Dems, the liberals, the mainstream media, they are out to get him. I don't really care what they say on The View for the most part, but this kind of just shows how committed they are to taking him out. Florida's climate challenges are among the biggest in the country. Yes, that's Hurricanes cool. intensified by yeah. climate change, yes. rising yeah. sea levels, yes. extreme heat that and water. drought. Yeah. And health, this one's the worst one. Health threats from mosquito-borne diseases. Okay, oh. This is the quote from Governor DeSantis yeah. about climate change. Quote, I am not in the pews of the church of the global warming leftists. This is what he thinks about climate change. And now his state is getting hit with one of the worst hurricanes well, that perhaps, they will ever see. <laughs> what else was on that card for her to read? Boy, she really needed that card. Uh, I don't know if she could tell me much about climate change or you, Joy Behar. A nice person in real life, I think. But is it really Ron DeSantis' fault, climate change? Let's take a quick look, right? He became governor in 2019. <laughs> First elected to Congress in 2012, all right? Uh, if climate change is a real thing, it's been in the works for a long time, and Ron DeSantis had nothing to do with it, all right? Uh, oh, uh, Joe Biden was uh, so enamored with his FEMA chief, the director of FEMA. What's her name? And the FEMA administrator who's become the MVP here these days. I spent a lot of time in this room. Uh, uh, Griswell, uh, uh, FEMA, and the an entire workforce. Uh, FEMA, a lot of time with her. Well, her name is Deanne Criswell, not Griswold. <laughs> and she's standing right there. And at first, ooh, she thought she was getting a shout out. And then he didn't know her name. And take a look at her face, because she is standing right there. And the FEMA administrator, who's become the MVP here these days, I spent a lot of time in this room. Uh, uh, Griswell, uh, uh, FEMA, and the an entire workforce. Uh-oh. <laughs> you see that big smile and then it went away? Griswell. It's Chriswell. Anyway, then it was time to leave the room, and Joe was supposed to go this way, but he went that way. Watch. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This can't go on for much longer, can it? It can't. Remember what happened yesterday with the woman who died, but he thought was alive? Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, was going to be here to help make this a reality. Congresswoman died in a car accident early last month. This is, uh, I'm sorry, we're getting there. 25th Amendment territory, just like President Trump predicted. The 25th Amendment is of zero risk to me, but will come back to haunt Joe Biden and the Biden administration. As the expression goes, be careful what you wish for. Oh, I'm sorry. I, do, I, I hope it doesn't happen, but I think it's going to happen. And if it does happen, hmm, because then we have Kamala Harris to worry about. She made this this is why you can't have a person like this on the world stage representing America. She got North Korea and South Korea mixed up. So the United States shares a very important relationship, which is an alliance with the Republic of North Korea. And it is an alliance that is strong and enduring. Yeah, 
This is a problem. This is a real problem. She looks like she's got something going on. There's something right, not right here. There's something not right. What's going to happen? I don't know. It's going to be wild, though. All right. I want to talk about the election for a moment. Uh, I have grave doubts about the fairness of the election, the 2020 election. And this is America. It's, you're allowed to have doubts and concerns, okay? And that's uh, news to uh, the Colorado Secretary of State. She's a Democrat. She's running for re-election. And boy, oh boy, is she high on her own supply and said some pretty crazy things on MSNBC. Uh, so there's a host of things that you can do. But at the same time, look, we are seeing Americans' freedom to vote rolled back. We also need secretaries of state who will open up the franchise. That's why I expanded drop boxes by 65 percent, set up automatic voter registration, a program that's registered 350,000 Republicans, Democrats and unaffiliateds. Drop boxes are such a problem. You know, when we put something in the mailbox, it's steel. Nobody knows what's in there. It's uh, secure. And we've been doing it for 200 years. A drop box, a flimsy plastic thing. Hey, everybody, the votes are in this unattended box in the middle of the night. It's obviously bad. And registering people to vote automatically Try that in Iraq. That's what he used to do. Everybody can vote just because you're there. It doesn't and has never worked that way in America. I do not trust these people, and neither should you. Next. This emerging threat of disinformation uh, is something being pushed by our foreign adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, uh, but also from domestic actors, obviously. Uh, and we have to expect people like my mom. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a cabin with an outhouse outside in, in rural Colorado. We have to expect someone like my mom, who did not grow up with cell phones, who did not grow up with social media, to be able to withstand really sophisticated disinformation attacks. Uh, and the number one way to do that is to to make sure that folks like her are aware of disinformation. So number one, it's alerting Americans of the role of disinformation and sending them to a trusted source. The nerve of these people, the Hunter Biden laptop. Do you remember the president of the United States himself stood up on that stage during the debate and said this was Russia disinformation. And he was backed up by people like John Brennan, Obama's CIA director, who sat on MSNBC just the other day. This guy, this is a Mr. Misinformation Specialist himself. And, oh boy, we're on to them, though. We're on to them. They won this round. We'll see what happens next. Stay with us. Thank you very much, and we'll see you tomorrow, Friday.